0: Welcome to She Plus Me, a podcast that inspires and celebrates personal and professional growth. I'll be your host, Nora Bade, founder of She Plus Me, an educational lifestyle brand. After going through my own wild journey of discovering my most authentic self through mind, body, and soul, I've been discovering what it takes to find your passion and to live your most authentic life. This is the place to be to dig into real and raw conversations with radiant souls, from everything natural beauty to holistic health, deep healing, personal growth, and building a purposeful life. Every single one of us has the ability to build extraordinary lives, and this podcast is going to help you get there.
1: You're listening to the She Plus Me podcast, and I'm your host, Nora Bade. And today we are chatting with entrepreneur, photographer, and philanthropist, Sue Siri. Sue is the founder of Iris Booth, a unique software booth which helps users take the perfect headshot and corporate photos creating professional polished results that's just as easy as taking a selfie. Today we are going to be chatting about Sue's journey and what it took to make her passions and dreams a reality. Welcome Sue. Hi Nora. I'm so excited to have you on because your journey is a little unlike any other.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if that's a good thing.
1: (laughs) Well I think it's a wonderful story and I'm so excited to share how you who started Iris Booth and even going way back to where you first started. So let's dig right into it. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. I'm going to go back to growing up as a young uh, female, where you grew up and uh, what your passions were.
2: So I grew up in rural Nova Scotia and I grew up in uh, an economically disadvantaged family. So we didn't, and this is quite some time ago. So we didn't have photographs, we didn't have cameras, we didn't have a lot of excess, anything. So photos of my family, are very rare, especially my own childhood. So I think that kind of sparked this appreciation for the value of photographs and how we identify and how we track and how we record our lives through photographs has always felt really, really important to me. Mm-hmm. So from a super early age, I identified as being a photographer. I identified um, with being a creative professional. Uh, the first time I picked up a Nikon camera at the age of 13, I was pretty much, I was done. I was going to be a photographer. So it started very early for me. And so when you picked up that camera
1: and you felt the connection and the passion, did you even take the organic route of, you know, getting the education or did you just?
2: No, I, I took the tried and true method. Mm-hmm. So in high school, I became um, the head of our photography club. I ran around the school proudly carrying the key to the the only dark room yeah. I organized a group of photographers who worked on the yearbook in my senior year I became the yearbook editor so I did all of those like... Typical steps. I ended up going to King's University here in Halifax, and I studied journalism for a while, and then I switched over to the NSCC and took their photography program. So I took kind of that typical route to getting my first job. And yeah. my first job directly out of school was at the uh, the only provincial newspaper in Nova Scotia, the Chronicle Herald. And at that time, it was fairly controversial. I was the first female press photographer to ever work in Nova Scotia. It was considered not to be the thing. So and how I was that as an experience? Wow, was, that's, I mean, <laughs> I, I had no idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting. It was, it, at the time, the, the kind of photo editor, photo manager... Just didn't think it was proper for a woman to be in the dark room with other male photographers. So it was a pretty silly kind of thing, but he was a bit old school. And, um, but I really was passionate and excited to start a career and I really wanted to make a name for myself. And at that time, I really thought I wanted to go into press photography. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was exciting, you know, young and full of optimism. And I think what youth has in its favor is that they don't understand understand the limitations, which is a really good thing. I think as we get older and we start to understand limitations, we limit ourselves. We we match ourselves to those sort of society norms. When you're young, you don't have that. So I took full advantage of that and I just dove in and And, uh, you know, became a press photographer in spite of it all.
1: I want to dig into that a little bit, especially being a young female, being the first in Nova Scotia of just press photography and being in a room of predominantly males. How was that as an experience from a female perspective? And did you ever feel like it was limiting you in any sense or, you know, felt like there were perhaps um, labels to, to say the least, um, apply to kind of I. Uh- Y- your career path in any
2: way? No, I, di- I didn't feel limited at all. In fact, I was very fortunate at the Herald to have a super supportive, really lovely group of men that I worked with and some of them to this day are still friends um, that not only supported me, but encouraged and mentored and helped me along the way. I actually didn't stay uh, working as a press photographer for very long. It, it was ironic that I pushed so hard to get into the field and then once I was there, I decided it just really wasn't my thing. Yeah. So I think I stayed for just less than a year. And I ended up moving away and sort of transitioning to a different genre of photography. But I think it was, um, it gave me the confidence that I could do anything, I could push boundaries, I could change a no to a yes, with Mm -hmm. the right amount of determination and Vocabulary and skill sets. You know, it's not just a matter of yelling the loudest, but it's a matter of convincing other people that um, their no can be more fluid.
1: I I couldn't agree more. And I think. But that statement, it's not about being the loudest, rings very true. And I think it speaks volumes, especially to what you want to create in your career. And so post-Chronicle Herald, what did that look like for you?
2: Well, um, in typical, in the typical fashion of a young You know, sort of idealistic person. I I followed a man out to the prairies, and my first job there was um, with Agriculture Canada. I sort of fished around with a few different genres of photography, but my heart has been and always will be in photographing people. I love the human face. I love human expression. I think it harkens back to that period in my youth that I talked about, that I just think it's so important for people to have visual records of their lifetimes. And that always rang so true to me. So I've always loved to do portrait photography. I love to photograph people. I love to be a part of events And to be part of things that involve people. So growing up uh, disadvantaged, you don't always get that kind of ticket into the door. Mm -hmm. So photography, having that camera had become my badge to being included in everything. So social engagements, private functions everything now was open to me, especially going back to that first job of press photography. There's such a power in wearing a press badge because it opens every door. So it was this sense of power and belonging and inclusion that the camera has always represented to me. And I always wanted to use that as a force for good, to help people celebrate milestones in their life, to document their life, to empower other people to see themselves in the best possible light. So photography is very important to me on a lot of levels. What I
1: really like, especially in your story so far, has been, you know, picking up a passion and picking up a passion in coinciding a disadvantaged story, if you will. And I think, you know, with any narrative, naturally, one who might feel, you know, at a disadvantage, It might, you know, limit them to a certain extent or perhaps have this mentality of lack or I can't attain a certain goal or level of perhaps passion or dreams or making even a dream a reality. And I think that's a really big one, especially for people who might feel it. at a disadvantage, whether it be socially, economically, or even culturally. Um, And so for that reason, I think, you know, this really speaks true to how once you infuse yourself in just solely the passion, so many doors can open for you
2: hmm. That's so true. And I also think that, for the record, I think all of us, without exception, at some point or another, have felt disadvantaged by something, you know, being disadvantaged doesn't always have to apply to your economic circumstances or your ethnic origins or your political views. I mean, at some point in all of our lives we face a time where we feel disadvantaged and I think it's important to kind of dig into that and use it to help you go forward.
1: What did that look like for you on your personal journey to dig into that and utilize that besides picking up a camera? Did you feel like you had to do any kind of inner work uh, especially with attaining yourself as you know a female and putting yourself out there?
2: Absolutely I think you know I always grew up with this understanding that I had to, I was starting from a place further back than my peers. So I always had to run further, faster, better, stronger, meaner, leaner than everyone else just to keep up. And that's a great training ground for life. So if you feel like, your bar is higher than everyone else's. You will meet that bar. It's all a matter of perspective and how you choose to look at it. And I'm also very stubborn. So the more you tell me I can't do something, the more likely I am to do just that. Yeah. So I part of it was personality. Yeah. Part of it was personality and part of it was training. But yeah, between those two things. So when you say training,
1: what's the training aspect besides practicing photography?
2: I think it's so much more than that. I think there are incredibly, incredibly talented photographers who unfortunately don't end up successful in a typical sense in, in so much as they don't end up, you know, having booming careers. Success is built on a number of things. It's built on discipline, it's built on hard work. It's built on strategy. I have some fortune in that I have kind of this left brain, right brain where I'm able to be creative, but I'm also be able to be very logical and analytical. I can run a business. I can crunch numbers. I can kind of do both sides of the job. And I think. I think cultivating both those sides are really important if you want to be, you know, successful in in the business of
1: photography. And so for you, that took quite a transition because as, the, you know, you started freelancing and, you know, doing your own thing and taking pictures of of people. And mm-hmm. that was your main gig for a, a large period of your career.
2: Correct. That was by far the, the majority of my career was running my own studio. Um, so... And and that was an amazing career to have. I had young children. I was very flexible. I worked my own hours. I could incorporate my own children into my business. I was able to be a very present parent, and still be able to be financially and personally fulfilled by. Uh, a career and a passion that I didn't have to put on hold. And I never felt like I had to choose one or the other. So, photography has been really exceptionally kind to me. Uh, like I said, I wasn't probably the single most talented photographer ever, but I ran a really good business for a long number of years. And I'm, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful for that.
1: I, I really love that you had just said that because I think, you know, running a great business, I think that's uh, regardless of the industry you're in, I think that's the important aspect of of running a great business, um, regardless if you're working for yourself or somebody else. I think there's this connotation of you have to be an entrepreneur to think of your long term uh, career or if even you are in a corporate role, there's kind of this uh, trudged kind of journey that we just assume that, you know, we have to go uh, from A to B to C. And um, females particularly, I'm going to highlight this, um, unfortunately feel like they have to check all of the boxes before, you know, uh, applying for that promotion or even going for that, you know, big dream ticket or, you know, this this passion that they've wanted to pursue for so long. So that's a Mm -hmm. really, you know, that's a a statistic fact that's been kind of out there. So for you, you kind of have from the get go kind of hit the ground running and have followed your passion. So as we know now, you know, you're, you're doing your own thing in the tech uh, startup space, but kind of, can you talk me through the transition of when you decided to do that and what it looked like for you?
2: I can. Um, so I was I was at an event. I was attending an event as um, a guest. And I remember seeing, um, this was probably 10 or 12 years ago. I remember seeing a colleague who was si- slightly senior to me shooting the event that I was attending. Mm-hmm. And I had this moment where I thought, oh, Photography has a shelf life. I, for whatever reason, felt like the physicality of the job, just the nature of the job um, is suited to a slightly younger demographic. And when you are in your 50s and 60s and you're still out there at 10 o'clock at night carrying, you know, tons of equipment around and shooting, I just saw myself and I thought, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be doing the, the physical aspect of this job. Um, into my retirement years, so I started to think about you know how can I how can I adjust what I'm doing so that I don't burn out. And I was still in my sort of early to mid 40s at that point, so I wasn't there. I wasn't ready to think about slowing down or retiring, but I knew long term I had to come up with another strategy. The flip side of that is that I've always loved business. I really like the idea of business and this how you strategize and how you deal with customers and just everything about business was very interesting to me. So I spent a long time, years thinking about how I could build a business with passive income where I wouldn't have to work so hard and it wouldn't be a fee for service structured business. Um, It could be something that was more self-sustaining. And interestingly, I came up with some of the worst ideas I've ever had. I mean, I looked at (laughs) retail and, you know, I could open a coffee shop and I could do a secondhand store and just all of these things that I honestly had no business participating in, things I didn't know anything about. I just knew that before my career was over, I wanted to have a swan song. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to prove to myself and my children and the world that I was sort of more than just a photographer, that I could do a different business. So after... Several years of really coming up with some terrible ideas, it struck me that I could create another business, but still harness 25 years of experience and expertise in the photographic world and bring that with me into my new business. And it was like this light bulb moment that went off. And that's kind of how Iris Booth came to be. And how it actually sparked was that I got an RFP from a local university Mm -hmm. And they were looking to get about 4,000 grad photos done. And if you're a photographer, you know, that's like the flipping burgers at McDonald's kind of photography. It's not something somebody would want to go and do, like 4,000 grad photos at a university. I remember thinking, no, I can't. There's there's no amount of money that would make that worth. (laughs) 4,000? Yeah. 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 It's just like, it's just a cattle call. And it's just like, uh, no creativity. You just shoot them. Yeah, become a robot. kind of job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember sitting at my kitchen table, having dinner with, with my family, uh, my husband and my kids, and I was joking um, at the time, both my kids were in university, and I was joking at the time that I was going to take all of my equipment into this university, find a, an empty classroom. I would set up the lighting. I would set everything up. Put the camera on a tripod, record my voice, giving them posing instructions, and then charge them twenty dollars each to come into the classroom and take their own photograph. Which at that, yeah. <laughs> and both my kids sort of sat up and said, "You know, that's not the dumbest idea you've ever had." I would. I bet a lot of kids would pay twenty dollars for that. So we came up with this idea that. Yeah, it, we had, so Kim Kardashian had just published a book called Selfie. Yes. <laughs> I've become acutely aware that most people under the age of 30 knew how, how, knew better how to photograph themselves in terms of angles and expressions than I could do. Like they were masters at the selfie. Um, 15 year old girls were nailing these beautiful portraits online. So I thought, yeah. okay, I'm quickly becoming obsolete in terms of an expression coach. There was just a lot of things. Technology was was moving very quickly. Uh, Photography had become accessible to almost every human on the planet who carried a cell phone. it was changing very quickly. And I realized, okay, it's it's adapt or die. It's innovate or die. And this, so there was like this perfect storm of things that happened, but I was also open and ready for it because I had spent all of these last several years playing with dumb ideas that when, when the good idea presented itself, I was open and ready for it. Yeah. I was able to recognize it. And this just felt like this is it. This is, I'm going to build. In fact, I built the first prototype out of cardboard and craft paper in my living. <laughs> I'm going to build this thing to let people take really good quality photographs of themselves. But I love that. Like,
1: I love the just action, like the, the execution of it and the really, I mean, the bootstrapping of it. You didn't, you know, um, I know for And I'm thinking, I'm saying, I know. But for myself, I would just think about what I needed in terms of um, the material to create it. And I would have, you know, the little nitty gritty things that in the large scheme of things, you you really don't need to pay attention to, especially at the beginning of it. But Mm -hmm. the, the execution process of especially tuning into what was happening at a society level from, you know, selfies booming and technology. I mean, nowadays, even iPhones, you can, you can kind of argue or kind of comparable to a Canon or like a, a, a camera. And mm-hmm. so those are all elements that for anybody who is not in touch with what's happening on, you know, a larger scale of things can really, like you had said, it's it's kind of adapt or die. And so mm-hmm. I, I love the whole, you know, using what you have at the tip of your fingers to kind of bring this all to life.
2: I think sometimes as well, it's, it's good not to know too much. Mm-hmm. It's good to know the high level details, because I, I often say that, Starting a new business is like parenting. If we knew what we were in for, nobody would take the plunge. Like, no one would have the courage to really do that if you understood all of those little details. Like, if I had known how difficult, how, you know, devastatingly exhausting this would be, how fraught with risk, how, you know, just all of the challenges that are indescribable, if I had known those up front, I wouldn't have been. Quote brave enough to move forward, but my bravery was really rooted in the fact that I was blissfully ignorant of <laughs> yeah. how challenging the process was going to be. <laughs>
1: yeah, and well, I mean, and that's what I, I even think about it from in different industries, like you had said. When you're when you're so naive, sometimes oh, that's what. Yeah, And uh, I I think going into that, so, you know, going into a cardboard box,
2: essentially (laughs) with a camera (laughs) and great lighting. You know, I missed a lot of steps. I was just like, (laughs) we can go from the cardboard box to this high tech, beautifully designed unit. And it's, and people would say, like, how are you going to get there? And I would say, I don't know. I just have to figure out the next step. And then from the next, like, but I didn't look too far down the road and people would challenge me. People would say, how are you going to get from here to here? How are you going to fund this? How are you going to sell this? How are you going to get in front of the right people? And and every time I would Inside, I would be like, I don't know. But outwardly, I was like, I'll figure it out. I just have to get to this next step. I just have to do this next thing. And I would say it confidently. But inside, I was like, I have no idea. Yeah. But I know that I'll figure it out. And so I find that interesting. And I kind of both
1: love it and very intrigued by the step-by-step aspect. Because for any business owner or anybody who's, you know, thought about starting their own business, it's always a sit down, write your business plan from like <sighs> day one yeah. to yeah. year five. And it sounds to me, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say it sounded like you're flying by the seat of your pants. But yeah. with so much resilience and just so much trust in and knowing it was going to happen
2: Mm -hmm. yeah I I was very much encouraged to sit down and write out um, spec documents and and business plans and all of this stuff and I'm I'm not going to say that it's not yes I am it didn't work for me (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say it. it. It felt like a big exercise in wasted time and resources and money. Um, I think with something, when when you're, if I was to start that coffee shop that we talked about, then absolutely a business plan is a valid vehicle to help you get there. When you're trying to do something that's never been done, that's that's very fluid, where you're still trying to do customer discovery, and you're still trying to figure out what your market is. And you don't even quite understand what your product is, or what it's going to offer. Trying to write a business plan is like trying to catch fireflies in your hand. Like it's just, it's so futile, that I think you have to just have a big picture vision. And you have to let those little pieces work themselves out when they're ready. You can't You can't go into it thinking you have all the answers because when you're that rigid, that's where the failure comes in. You have to be able to be fluid and adaptable. And I think qualities that are much better indicators of success are perseverance determination, incredibly hard work. You have to be so disciplined. And I think that's where so many years of being a freelancer helped me. I don't have to struggle to be motivated. I get up every morning at six o'clock and I'm at my computer and I'm working and, you know, I don't get distracted by I'm going to go to the beach today or I'm going to go shopping today. You know, I think just having some of those personality traits are better indicators of success then I was able to sit down and write a document that likely isn't going to stand the test of time. Yeah. Because the business is going to have to adapt so far beyond. I looked at my business plan a few months ago. I don't know why. And almost nothing in that business plan is relevant to my current day business.
1: Which is actually a very funny and true statement. I think many people can say that about their business. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, most businesses started off as something other than what they started out as. Yeah,
1: and that is true. And I think it speaks volume to, you know, you have to adapt. And in reality, having that rigid structure can limit you in many ways. Absolutely. And so for you, when you started going, you know, step by step, what did that look like? Where were you seeking, you know, the guidance, the mentorship and really bringing this, this dream
2: uh, into a reality? Well, it was... It- That was actually quite challenging because I think I, first of all, I come from a very non-technical background and what I was trying to do was very technical. Even though I had all of the photography experience, I didn't have any of that technical experience. I don't write code. I don't, you know, I'm not a tech wizard. Um, I don't have an MBA. So there were a lot of areas that I needed to learn a lot about very quickly in order to get up to speed. And I think for the first two years I was doing this, every single time I went into a room, I felt like the dumbest person in the room. I was just like, like struggling to keep up trying to just even understand the language that was being used in the conversation. So I had to learn all of these new vocabularies and all of these new concepts and engineering and product design. And it was was an incredible time. And I didn't see myself reflected Necessarily in my peers. My peers were generally much younger mm-hmm. doing um, tech based uh, startups. They were also um, typically like 25 year old men who just graduated with software engineering degrees who felt like they were just light years ahead of where I was in terms of where the, the skill set that I wanted to have. So mm-hmm. I just, some of that, I just had to be kind of kind to myself and be my own mentor and say, okay, it's all right. You'll get there. Like you mm-hmm. have other, you have other things to offer. But, um, you know, I, I went to Dow, uh, and I got some help from their engineering department, putting together an early prototype. I just, pounded on a lot of doors and I talked to a lot of people and some people were very patient and kind and some people, you know, just didn't think I was ever going to get to where I am now. So So, it was definitely a challenging time. Well, yeah. And it
1: definitely sounds like it, even as you're speaking about it, I can vividly, for anybody who's been in the tech space, can vividly picture it. I I think it's a well-known kind of uh, picture of just this tech space being very male-dominated, but more so it's evolving so quickly. So you feel like you are literally trying to catch up with the next thing that's just about to come out. Right. And Absolutely. so for you, you were kind of swimming in a completely uncharted territory. And so for you at any point where you like, what am I doing? Am I, you know, putting, putting myself or even, you know, my, my career kind of at risk at all?
2: Oh my gosh. That was, yeah, that every day I went to bed. That's exactly what I thought. Um, I had risked financial security, absolutely, 100%, which is difficult when you're young and you're you know, 25 or 30 years old and you crash and burn. And that whole fail fast concept is fantastic for that demographic because you can just pick yourself back up and you have a whole lifetime of of a career ahead of you. And you take those mistakes with you. When you get into the latter part of your career, you don't have time to recover from, from fairly spectacular mistakes. But again, I always choose to see the positive side of that. The flip side of that is that startups that have older founders tend to do better because we understand we can't give up. We can't just move on to the next thing. We have to stick with it and make it work because we don't have time to switch gears and turn around and start again. So I just always tried to keep the, the positive side of everything in front of me. So it's it's not a negative use it as a positive, but it was, it was really challenging. I mean, the first couple of years were definitely really, really tricky. Yeah, and I think that's
1: to be said about you know, of course, any business. The first five years, you know, typically they say those are the the driest <laughs> times of really of if you're capable of you know ebbing and flowing with the ups and downs. And I think that's if you can survive even three years, I think you know you have it in the in the bag essentially. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into uh, the mindset aspect of this. So you know, when you mentioned seeing the the negative. As a positive and that sort of thing. From a day-to-day perspective, what I mean, you know, of course you were pouring, I can imagine most, if not all of your time into this business and making it reality. Where was that balance of kind of your personal and professional and keeping yourself sane and also not burning out?
2: So I have never had clear, concrete definition between my personal life and my professional life. Um, And that's a good thing. I mean that in a positive way in that I feel like my work is just an extension of who I am. It's an extension of my life. I don't feel like I'm always looking at the clock. Like, is it five o'clock? Can I stop working? My brain has never been built like that. If I'm awake, I'm working in some respect, especially being a creative professional, some of my best ideas, some of my best uh, work gets done when my brain is at rest. So I could be walking in the park and I come up with, you know, an idea. So there wasn't, there wasn't the separation. It was just the intensity of the work was so uh, challenging and exhausting the first couple of years. And just that, that steep curve of just getting up to speed with being able to sit in a room and hold a conversation, um, using all of this new vocabulary, using all of these new concepts, being able to manage a team of people, you know, a team of engineers and a team of software developers and and that kind of thing just took a lot of, um, it took a lot out of me. I had Mm -hmm. to put a a lot of other things aside, like um, restfulness and, Uh, personal relationships uh, were just kind of shelved short term. I had to really shrink my social circle so that I had the focus and the time that I could put into this. So anything non-essential those first couple of years just had to go away. They just Mm -hmm. couldn't live inside my bubble. I was very, very obsessed, slashed, uh, focused on this new little project that I was doing.
1: And, and that speaks volume. So, you know, especially with your first prototype, tell me how that looked like and kind of taking it to
2: quote unquote market. <laughs> the first prototype we did looked like a can of soup. It was round. <laughs> it had this weird curved door. I tried to be very like, it looks It it was awful. Um, Structurally, it wasn't good. Like it wasn't a good shape to build this design. It was crazy. And the first prototype was so incredibly overspecked because we did it in conjunction with the engineering department at Dell. So they, of course, just wanted to like throw everything they could at it. We had these electromagnetic locks on the door, so you couldn't even get in. It was insane. It was so (laughs) much fun though to look back on it. And then we tried to simplify it, which we did. We made this like basic rectangular structure and it was so incredibly ugly. And I always joke that when I look back at photographs of that very first couple of prototypes that it's like looking at a bad 80s haircut, you just go, what was I thinking? Yeah. what in on earth was i thinking and as we move forward and as the product becomes more and more developed like most things like everything art mm-hmm. technology the the more simple that it becomes the better it becomes so our design was simplified our process was simplified our code base was cut by a third our hardware was cut by a third so everything as As we're able to actually remove pieces, we make a better product. So we started with this overcomplicated, over engineered, over specced monstrosity that had like bright colors and too much messaging, and it was, you know, crazy, Mm -hmm. down to this sleek, well built, beautifully designed product that works simply. Mm -hmm. The user interface is incredibly intuitive. Everything about it is just simple and easy to use. We have two full products now. We have a a full-size booth that you get into, and then we have this little portable unit that's so fun and fresh. We launched it just over a year ago at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and we've since seen a lot of success. We've been all over the world with this iris air it's called and it's Mm -hmm. so sleek and simple and easy to use and we bring them sometimes eight or nine in a row at these big events and people line up to use them and it takes three minutes an average of three minutes for someone to sit in front of this thing get a beautiful photograph edit it and have it sitting on their phone within three minutes
1: that's people incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that's the simplicity that then I see we've really done something well. The fact that it's so quick and easy and we have people anywhere from the age of six to the age of 90 sit in front mm-hmm. of this thing and understand how to use it. It's that's very incredible. simple. Yeah, And especially
1: in an event base where, you know, there's hundreds to thousands of individuals that want to, you know, yeah. either take a picture for themselves, have it as a memory or even quite simply, you know, just for uh professional uses, especially nowadays where social media and just our online world is very existent um, in our everyday use. And so that's what we use to kind of showcase, if you Mm -hmm. will, our experiences.
2: Absolutely. So we Mm -hmm. market this exclusively for professional headshots and integrated badging solutions so people can use it for lots of different things i know for a fact that many iris photos end up on dating sites and people you know bring bring partners <laughs> in for shots yeah there's, <laughs> people are very creative how they use iris booth but we market it very specifically for professional headshots and integrated badging and um and i think you're right i think um, how we present ourselves online, even more so now with COVID and uh, social distancing, we, people are meeting us online every minute of every day. Whether we recognize that or not, and what they're seeing are influencing their first impressions of us. So I think it's super important to put an image out there that's polished and professional. And I think it's also important to kind of level that social playing field so that everybody has the same access to professional images. And that's kind of something I'm very proud of Iris Booth for doing. We're not exclusive. We're not this super high-end, you need to come up with $500 the day you graduate from university just to get a headshot that won't look like you in two years. We want to give people this readily available quality product that they can update often, that they can use with confidence, that's going to help them feel confident in pursuing whatever crazy dreams they come up with.
1: In essence, it's a very timeless experience in in the sense of both access and how often you can, you know, leverage the experience if you want to update it, if you want to get a few different shots. I think that's definitely important, especially where, you know, uh, typically and especially I'm going to say probably within the past 20 years, it's changed. But typically you see a very stiff photo and it's not so, you know, Right, and looks like you, like you had mentioned. Um, right. But nowadays, you feel like photos in general, even once you take a quick scroll on LinkedIn, you feel like you're getting a more accurate representation of an individual versus that. I have to be professional. I'm wearing, you know, a tie and suit or I'm wearing a dress shirt. And, you know, I'm, I have my best smile on essentially mm-hmm. for the next opportunity. I mm-hmm.
2: think for sure people are much more comfortable taking their own photograph than they are presenting themselves to a stranger who's going to... Have ultimate control over their image, so I think the the do it yourself aspect of Iris Booth is definitely something that is appealing. People oh, want yeah. to be in control of what they're doing. It's it's genius,
1: and honestly, I I always think back to this even when uh, thinking of Iris Booth, and also just t- getting a photographed. Um, it's different once you know how you look like in a photo versus somebody telling how, telling you exactly. how to look like. Exactly. And yeah. I've experienced it many times. And then you're like, oh, well, that's not what I had in mind. And so it comes back to perception and also just descriptive language. But it's, it's so interesting to say the least. Um, I was going
2: to talk about that language issue because as a photographer, I would occasionally have somebody come in. I would spend an hour with them, do photographs that I felt were beautiful. I thought they were fantastic representations of this person. And then after the fact, so, you know, days later, they would say to me, I don't, I don't like this side of my face because, you know, this or that, or I didn't like my hair. I didn't want you to photograph me from this angle, but they didn't have the confidence to say it at the time. We don't always have the language skills or the ability to kind of articulate what we want to a stranger. Or even better yet, I would have people say, you didn't You didn't give me enough retouching on this, or there's too much retouching. All of that communication, um, friction is gone with Iris Booth because you are in control and you're choosing the angles and you're choosing how much to retouch the photo. I think there's definitely empowerment behind what we're doing.
1: I think also speaking of confidence and empowerment, In regards to being photographed, especially when you're going to a photographer, at least for myself, I always trust. I'm like, okay, the photographer knows best. You know, they know the good angles. They know the great lighting. It's their job, right? Yeah. Yeah. but at the same time, like going back to like perception of things, it's just sometimes you want, and especially from a consumer basis, I think regardless of if you're getting photographed or you're getting a haircut, you have a very specific image in mind. Mm-hmm. And for you to kind of just hope that they're going to read your mind and, <laughs> and give you what you're looking for is a very slim It's champ. true. It's true
2: so true yeah.
1: but um going back to you know we were talking about your first prototype and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and you know you mentioned it kind of it was a bad 80s haircut (laughs) Um, (laughs) and uh you know presenting that I want to I really I really want to highlight your uh your startup aspect of it so presenting that to you know investors and to the startup community how did that look like and uh for you, from you know an individual perspective, how did that feel like?
2: At the time, I think I was just so excited about what I was doing. Um, so first of all, I I don't have a lot of investors. I didn't raise a lot of um investment money when I was doing this. I tend to be financially very conservative. So I put up a lot of my own money and I had some friends and family come in. So I didn't do that traditional like mm, running around town and, and pitch competitions and to, I didn't go that route. I really bootstrapped the heck out of this for a long time because I felt like if I didn't believe in it, no one else should. So I put everything on the line first before I even dared to ask someone else for financial support for this. But I also believe it's true that investors don't invest in ideas or businesses, they invest in people. Mm -hmm. And I think the few people that did come forward and say, hey, I'd like to be a part of this. By the way, I had a ton of people offer to invest in the company. And I just kept saying no, partly again, because of that um, kind of reluctance to take a lot of risk. But also there was like this lack of confidence. I felt like if a real, quote unquote, real investor came in and invested in my company, they would expose me for not knowing all of the things that I'm supposed to know. So it was more comfortable for me to do it by myself. While I, w- I felt like I was learning, there was just so much I didn't know. I was afraid to bring an investor in who would say, Why don't you know this? Or why aren't you doing this? So it gave me a sense of freedom to run with it. But those few friends and family, bless them, they're so amazing. I think they were just taken by my own confidence and determination. I was so convinced that it was going to work that they became convinced as well. So I think, um, in terms of people uh, raising capital, it's important to remember that people invest in people not businesses. Yeah, and that's a
1: very important thing to remember. I I just especially with my time in the startup world, I think you very instantly can identify and Again, talking from my own perspective, can identify the people who are truly living and breathing what they're, you know, working on versus, and I'm going to say this, but like this facade of a startup. And I think it kind of speaks to the whole startup industry right now where, you know, every, Everybody and their dog wants to work for themselves and have their own business, which is, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think there's this growing sense of urgency of if you're not doing your own thing, then are you really successful? And I think uh, particularly younger individuals, millennials are feeling that sense of uh, perhaps uh, pressure of it, and you see so many individuals going out and doing their own thing, but there's this connotation again of success tied to it. And like we've tapped on, you know, throughout this conversation, is it's resilience. It's it's a lot of hard work, and sometimes that can, if you don't have first off the right skill sets, but second off the right mindset, it can really. Break uh, somebody in sense of confidence and sense of trusting in themselves, believing that they can accomplish it. You know, the list goes on.
2: So, uh, in absolutely, that- I think unfortunately society has moved to a place where millennials feel like their best option for success is to run their own business, and that's very different from the world that I grew up in. When When I was coming into my career, uh, success meant getting a good job. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, quote unquote, good jobs are very rare. A lot of millennials are working two or three jobs without benefits, without a future, without security. So I think that whole startup world has become so incredibly glamorized, has become really glamorized because it's, The whole industry around how we work has changed fundamentally in the past few generations. And I actually feel bad for millennials coming up now because. They understand that whatever job they get tomorrow might not be the same job they have in two years, might not be able to see them through starting a family or buying a house or, you know, creating their own wealth. So this idea of a startup, which on some levels, I think, has become an industry unto itself, has taken on this this sort of glossy aura of the this is the answer to a broken workplace. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's unfortunate. That's away from what we're talking about. But I think it's a symptom of something that's a little bit broken in society right now. Yeah. And well,
1: I want to dig into that just a little bit deeper. And for you, especially coming into the tech startup space, you know, later on in your lifetime. So it was something that was completely new, but also a different time of your life. How Mm -hmm. did that feel like to be in, you know, in an industry or even in a space, the startup space, especially, you know, in different cities, how did it feel like to be in a space where you felt like your perhaps gender or even age was a, a predominantly known factor?
2: So I think, again, going back to a lot of other things I said, I can almost take anything even a negative, and flip it on its head. So what I did is I just strode into every room. I mean, I've been all over the world with Iris Booth. I've been in some of the biggest boardrooms in the world. I work with some of the biggest companies in the world. And I just stride in as though like, Isn't this great? You now have an older woman. Like, I'm going to bring a fresh perspective. I'm going to bring something that these 30 year old men can't bring to you. I'm bringing something new. So it's really about flipping it on its ear. Like, I have something fresh and new, and this is going to be exciting. And I would just always turn every challenge into an opportunity. And I think. I think going back, I know this sounds very trite, but having the right attitude really is everything. I learned some small lessons while running my own studio, things about empathy and customer care and customer discovery and listening and adapting to customer needs. And I was able to take those learnings that I had for 25 years from being Personal photographer and just translate those because at the end of the day I could be sitting across a table um, from anybody but I still understand I need to know what this person wants I need to know how to make their job easier I need to know how to make them look good for their boss you know all of those same things still apply even when you scale up a business the concepts those root concepts are still very much the same. So being an older female gave me those skills in spades. It gave me empathy and customer care and all of those things that a strictly technical 25-year-old just wouldn't have any of that skill set. wouldn't be able to bring to bear some of the resources that I had. So through those experiences, both
1: as a freelancer running your own studio, and now the founder of a highly successful business, what would you say, you know, your takeaways and your tips uh, for millennials and young females alike that you would give them just to prosper in their career, but also to build themselves on a personal and professional level?
2: Honestly, everything I do is... Pretty much with my own children in mind, and they're both millennials, what you say has much less impact than what you do. So I've always tried to live my life as an example to, hey, guys, look, you can be risky, you can fail, you can get knocked down, you can do dumb things, um, but you can still get back up and really succeed and bring those failures with you, just the idea that it's better to try, it's better to be brave, it's better to be overly ambitious than to end up 80 years old sitting in your rocking chair thinking, I wonder what if, I wonder if I could have done more. So I would rather kind of put this message out there that just just go ahead, give it a try, see what you've got, and uh, failure, although it is very painful, is not fatal. It's not fatal. And get up. You can. You can keep going. Yeah, it's only temporary. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but it is absolutely temporary.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely doesn't feel like it at the time. <laughs> Um, you've obviously uh, learned a lot throughout your your journey, not just as uh, running Iris Booth, but throughout it all. What can people expect from Iris Booth uh, coming into, you know, we, we touched on COVID and the pandemic, and I know that obviously a lot of people are now essentially live streaming from their home 24-7. Uh, if you're not on one Instagram live, you're hopping onto another. I think it's the it's the new reality. So where can they find, first off, Iris? Booths uh, to take their own professional shots to update their LinkedIn, and furthermore, uh, what what is coming if there is anything coming?
2: So, um, for Iris Booth, we are we are moving forward. We're continuing development. We are, I think, poised to come out of this more relevant than ever. I think remote working is at least in some respects here to stay. So, again, going back to the importance of your online presence. Is going to increase. Um, the world will come out of this, and they will. There will be a new normal, and we will all get back to work. And I think um, that work is going to involve Iris Booth for sure. I think I think will be a mainstay. We don't have any retail. Uh, Iris Boost, that retail side of the business, when we talked about adapting a plan, our business now is solely focused on corporate sales and event rentals. Um, our corporate sales continue. We have orders right around the world right now that we're filling. Um, the events may take a year or two to come back, but will be there when they do. So the event side of our business continues to be developed and we continue to work on that, but we might just need to put a pin in that until it's safe to do so. And
1: I, I do want to ask uh, while while we're talking about, uh, you know, the great, the elephant in the room of essentially COVID-19 and the <laughs> pandemic, how how are you as a business owner evolving and kind of handling this situation and uh, business owner and professional really, um, how are you uh, ebbing and flowing with you know, what's happening today? So
2: COVID really truly is an emotional roller coaster. I'm sure for many of us, both personally and professionally, I am incredibly fortunate in that I'm very used to working uh, from home. And the only difference is that I used to travel two to three weeks a month and I'm not traveling anymore. So working from home has taken on a much broader (laughs) meaning. Um, Most of my staff is remote, which was true before COVID. So I'm used to dealing with remote teams of people. Personally, I really do miss the travel. I miss the events. I miss the client face to face, but we're adapting and you know, we're just getting used to that. Like everybody, we're just, you know, day to day trying to process the information as it comes and make good decisions and hopefully come out the other end, if not bigger and better than at least still intact. And that's, uh,
1: it's definitely something that I think we're all striving towards to at least take this time for ourselves to be better both personally and professionally. And I always say this, I think it's uh, in an odd and you know, ugly, but beautiful way. Uh, I think it's a blessing in disguise to kind of give us the time to be present and reflect on, you know, our, our passions, our purposes and where we are in life. And it's a it's a global scale, but I think it's it's one that we're all collectively going through. Yeah. It's good to know we're not so, alone. It really is. So for anybody who's listening, I know they're going to want to connect with you in some way, shape or form, regardless if it's, you know, being inspired by your words or your story or to follow along where can they find you?
2: So I am on LinkedIn. We have a website irisbooth.com Those are the two best places to find us. Uh, we, I, I think we have big things still yet to come. I think this is the beginning of our story so I'm hoping that there'll be lots to uh, lots to unfold in the, in the next couple of years.
1: I'm excited for what's to come. Thanks for being on Sue. Thanks
0: Nora. It was a pleasure. so much for listening. Want more? Don't forget to subscribe and to leave a comment below. Stay connected by following us on Instagram at sheme.co.